This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. And we welcome back to our show Howard Bloom, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Dark Invasion and The Last Good Night. He has a new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. This is a true story, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. The subtitle, An Ex-CIA Officer's Quest Through a Legacy of Betrayal. Howard Bloom, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for this book. I didn't know this story, and I think most of our Listeners don't know this story, so at the risk of starting with a terrible question for an author, I'd like to ask you to give us the outline of the story, the spy who knew too much. Who was the spy who knew too much, and what did he know? The story begins in many ways on a bright autumn morning in 1978. A sailboat goes aground on the Chesapeake Bay. The Coast Guard investigates. They find bullets scattered on the deck. They go down into the galley and they see top secret CIA documents. They see a, an, a strange electronic device, which is later identified as a birth transmitter, a device used for communicating with satellites. But there's no sign of the boat's owner, John Paisley, a high-ranking CIA official. Ten days later, however, a body wrapped in 36 pounds of chains manages to the surface of the Chesapeake Bay. The CIA looks at this corpse, and they find a bullet hole behind the left ear, uh, and they immediately say, well, this is Paisley, and he committed suicide. But there are a host of unanswered questions. For example, what about the fingerprints? Uh, the fingerprints on the corpse match uh, Paisley's. Well, the CIA now says, we've lost his fingerprints. I used to try that in high school. You know, the dog ate my homework. Uh, but the CIA is trying this again. And then they try to explain how the suicide took place. They say Paisley got on deck of this sailboat, wrapped himself up like a mummy in 36 pounds of chains, trundled over to the side of the boat, had a gun in his right hand because he was right-handed, managed to propel himself over the, overboard, overboard, yet while in midair, he reached across his body and shot himself behind the left ear. Well, that would take a, a real contortionist, and I think the explanation is a bit con contorted, too. But while all this is happening, a retired spy, the hero of my book, Pete Bagley, a former CIA officer, uh, decides that this strange ev event on the Chesapeake Bay, whether it's a, a suicide or something more more grim, uh, holds the key to unlocking everything that has gone wrong at the Central Intelligence Agency for years, all the blown operations, the lives that were lost uh, in Russia of, of double agents, and he decides to investigate. It's also an investigation which he hopes will restore his own somewhat tainted reputation. And that's the setup, the quest that begins my book. Okay, let's go back. Pete Begley, he's talking about his tarnished reputation. What tarnished his reputation? Well, Pete Begley was a high-flying CIA officer. He came from a, a very distinguished pedigree. Both his father and his uncle were admirals. His two brothers were admirals. 
but he had poor eyesight, so he couldn't go to Annapolis. He goes to Princeton, and then the Marines, and then the CIA, and he's doing all sorts of daring-do activities in, in the Cold War in, in Europe. He comes back to work in the agency in the Soviet bloc division. And he's sitting at his desk, and he starts putting two and two together, and he starts seeing that something is wrong. Information is leaking out. The opposition, the Russians, are finding out about our our top secret operations. Some, someone must be giving this information. And as he starts to look for this traitor, this mole, suddenly forces in the agency turn to him. And they say, well, Pete Bagley, you're the, you're the mole. You're the traitor. And for an entire year, he's put under intense scrutiny. Uh, he's eventually exonerated. He's given a promotion, in fact. Uh, but once you're in the agency and you've, you've been doubted, you've, your reputation has been impugned, it, your career is really off kilter. And Pete, when he has the opportunity, decides to retire. And he's enjoying retirement a great deal. He has a lot of activities, a very happy marriage, likes his kids. Every, everything is fine. But then this strange death on the Chesapeake Bay sort of pulls him back in. And he feels this is his second chance as a patriot to get to the bottom of things and also as a man to restore his own somewhat tarnished reputation. So as I confessed before we went on the air, I didn't know this story at all before seeing your book. I'd like to go back to the, the sailboat and the death and the body that rises to the, to the surface of the Chesapeake Bay was this a widely reported story at the time? Did it, people across the country it was, know it? Well, it was it was buried for a while, and then a, a resourceful reporter in the Maryland area got a hold of it by talking to a member of the Coast Guard, and he starts raising questions, and then the national press uh, started uh, looking into it. Uh, Tad Schultz of the New York Times Magazine, a very distinguished reporter, uh, started asking questions. So did uh, Bill Sapphire, a Times columnist. Uh, and then it's just sort of disappeared. They tried to get congressional hearings. Uh, at one point, there was a congressional investigation, and the congressional investigator gave this weird quote to the, to the Washington Post where he said, you know, we're never going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, there's, they couldn't seem to get all the information about what was going on. So I heard about this from a someone in the intelligence services who said, who had known my previous books, known my work as a New York Times reporter, and said, this is something you should look into. And then when I saw that it wasn't just a story of a death, but really the story of, of this man, this, this hero, Pete Bagley, who was trying to put the pieces together, that's when I decided that this could be a dramatic as well as interesting and informative story to tell. Which it is. I, but tell me this, because there's a piece of this that just doesn't make any sense to me, and it's this. The CIA, more than any other agency of the United States government, wants to protect its secrets. There is an indication that there's a Russian mole at high levels of the CIA, and instead of trying to fix it, they try to cover it up. How does that make any sense? <laughs> it, it shows an institutional mindset. There are two warring camps to this day in the CIA. The people who support Pete Bagley's view are, are, talk about the master plot, how the Russians have set up an agency 
Section 13, it's called, to try to penetrate the agency. The people on the other side of the agency, much more complacent, don't want to make waves, don't want to have the agency being embarrassed. They call this the monster plot. They say this is just sheer paranoia. And these two factions, <laughs> it's just not cut throat in the back alleys of the Cold War. It's it's in the hallways of Langley to this day. And, you know, right now, we're the Cold War has suddenly become a de facto hot war in the Ukraine. I mean, lives are at stake. And if the United States is not being an aggressive counterintelligence agency, not aggressively looking for traitors in its midst, it's a very dangerous situation. And that's really sort of the continuing, the continual message of Pete Begley's activities. He sets out on this quest, which reveals a continuum of treason. Let's go back for one second, backfill this. John Paisley ends up with 35 or 40 pounds of chains, but his body floating in the Chesapeake Bay. Do you ever get to the bottom of why he was apparently murdered since the suicide story seems so far-fetched? I, I think what Begley, and I don't want to give away everything in, in the book, I think what Begley eventually decides is that that wasn't Paisley's body. That was someone else's. Whose body it is still remains a mystery. But Paisley was exfiltrated by the Russians. He'd been working for them and taken to Moscow, where he lives out his life in Moscow. He never died on the Chesapeake Bay. And the book ends in 2007 uh, with Begley, with a, a Soviet, former Soviet KGB general who's been taken to a cemetery outside Moscow, where where allegedly that Paisley's body is interred. So in terms of what is made public, let's turn to that for a minute. There, There's this uh, bizarre story that comes to light. And William Sapphire, of course, is a distinguished conservative New York Times columnist and reporter. And what comes out, what does the American public learn about the CIA. The American public, unfortunately, learns that the CIA a keeps its secrets and b is a is a feuding agency. Uh, you know, spy masters uh, hold on to their secrets long after their expiration date. While while researching the story, you know, I, I talked to someone at the agency, actually inside the agency, and I said. I guess as a pompous reporter, I'm setting out to tell a true story. And he starts laughing. And I'm sort of chagrined, and I wonder what's so funny. He says, you're never going to get the true story. He says, I'm never going to get the true story. There's always one more file uh, that they're holding back that no one will ever get. And I think, you know, while I give the best possible explanation and, and Paisley gets to the bottom of things, there's still that one more file out there that connects all the dots. Is there still this danger, what seems to be, given the war in Ukraine, a very intense and high-risk danger that, in fact, the Russians have moles at the highest level, uh, highest levels of the CIA and, in fact, know a lot about what the, what the American military and American intelligence is doing in Ukraine? Well, we know, for example, that 
Putin is a former KGB spymaster. We know that he has an aggressive form of Soviet uh, Russian activity. We've seen him hunt down defectors in the United Kingdom. We've seen him go to war uh, in the Ukraine. Would he, would he have stopped the department's 13th uh, program to infiltrate the U.S. intelligence services? Of course not. Of course it's going on today. And that's what is so shocking, uh, this institutional complacency uh, that there's no real concerted counterintelligence effort to investigate what is going on in the agency that disturbs me and I hope disturbs other Americans. That's what Bill Sapphire was upset about you know, 20 years ago and is still true today. We are speaking with Howard Bloom. His new book is The Spy Who Knew Too Much, an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. We'll be back with more with Howard Bloom right after this. From Russia with love. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I fly to you much wiser since... We continue our conversation with Howard Bloom. He is a New York Times bestselling author, has been with us on the show for two of his previous books, uh, Dark Invasion, The Last Good Night. His new book is The Spy Who Knew Too Much, an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. And I think like the best nonfiction, it reads like a novel. And I would love for our listeners to be able to hear a bit of what the book sounds like. Howard Bloom, would you be willing to uh, read a couple paragraphs for us? be my pleasure. I want to set up what the paragraph you're going to read, what we need to know before, if much. Sure. The first paragraph is actually chapter one, paragraph one. I'm trying to drag or pull the reader into the story, uh, let them know about my hero, Pete Begley, and to give them the sense that he is this sort of real-life Sherlock Holmes going back into into an old case and trying to see where it fits into everything that came before him and everything he has to do in the future. Okay? Please. Two deaths, each purportedly a suicide, each with its roots deep in the secret world, each with his own perplexing mysteries, wrench Pete Bagley, retired and somewhat besmirched spy from the complacency of his pleasant exile and set, and set him on the twisting path back to the shadowy battlefields of his previous life. It would be, he fully recognized, his final mission, his last chance to set straight the betrayals, both personal and professional, that had scarred not just the agency, but also his own family of spies. And like every old man who at last musters the courage to confront unfinished business, he could only hope that it was not too late. So really, for Bagley, this was just a matter of setting the record straight. He wants to investigate this apparent murder, a story that makes no sense with a, uh, CIA documents on a boat and a body and chains, and the whole thing sounds like yeah. a mafia hit. And he's just interested. He just wants to figure it well, out. It, 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 it's more than that. It's, as I say, it's tied into the agency's events that scarred the agency. He's doing this as a patriot because he thinks something is wrong and he feels it's his duty. 
He's the son of an admiral. Uh, his brothers are admirals. He was raised in a Navy tradition of duty to one's country, and he's trying to do that. And he's also trying to redeem his own, well, as I say, besmirched uh, reputation, because at one point he was accused of being a mole, of being a traitor, and he has to, he wants to set that record straight by finding the real one too. So he's really operating on two levels. One is a patriot and one is a man trying to redeem his reputation. And both those energizing motives are very important to him and keep him going uh, well beyond when other men might have stopped. He becomes almost Ahab-like in his obsession. How long had Begley been out of the CIA before this happened, before this caught his attention, before he went back into this? He, he'd been out uh, uh, nearly two decades. He, he was young. He retired, you know, in, in his uh, late, well, early 40s. And he, he just pulls himself back in. He just decides to get to the bottom of things. Well, speaking of getting to the bottom of things, perhaps you could share with us a bit of the prologue from the book. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you to explain that to us. The prologue is titled The Weight of Guilt. Could you read that to us? Sure. Guilt is a heavy burden. It weighs down on the heart an unremitting punishment. Yet she did not try to escape the pain or find excuses to wiggle out of the blame. Instead, she acknowledged her complicity. Her complicity. There were things she might have done that could have made a difference. That's the definite definition of guilt, she discovered knowing all you should have done. It didn't matter that she had not been in the car that night. It didn't matter that the accident occurred at the exit that led to the main entrance of the Central Intelligence Agency, or that this was where her husband worked and where she had worked too. All that mattered was that a young, handsome boy, her son's best friend, had been killed. In the terrible aftermath, she blamed her husband too. It hadn't been his fault. He had played no role in the night's heartbreaking events. And yet, she knew, as any wife would know, that he had created the reckless world that had inevitably bred this tragedy. Full of rage, raw with shame, after nearly two decades of marriage, she had demanded a divorce. And with her anger, she had thrown him into the arms of her best friend. She now saw that was all her own doing. As things had become undone, she had capriciously kept yanking the dangling threads, and in the end, her life had unraveled. Her punishment, a ceaseless, unabated guilt. But all her guilt was nothing, no less than nothing, when measured against the pain caused by the new, sinister knowledge that had taken hold of her life. It had the power to change everything that had come before, to turn long-accepted truths into lies. It was a very dangerous secret but she knew it could not be shared. She did not dare. It must be entombed forever in the shrewd armory of her heart. This is Howard Bloom reading from the beginning of his new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. Explain a bit of what that is about, the prologue. What's it setting up? Well, I'm trying to set up a character who's very close to John Paisley. This is his, his widow. John Paisley is the, the man who the CIA said committed suicide. She comes to believe that he's not dead, and this is Bagley's belief, too. And she also is the one who directly suffered, and her children, from her husband's reckless behavior. You know, traitors are 
our lives are filled with betrayals. He betrays, as John Le Carre once wrote, betrayal is a repetitious profession, repetitious trade. He, John Paisley betrays her in their marriage. He runs off with her best friend. He betrays the children by not being there for them. It leads his son down a very complicated road where his son is involved in drinking and driving and the son's best friend is killed right by the exit for the CIA on the highway in Washington. And she's having to live with all this as she's also trying to understand what really has happened to her husband. And further complicating this, as we'll see, she too worked at the CIA and she too had uh, a top secret clearance and had access to some very valuable secrets. The questions, and I think we will conclude with these, the questions that, that, that are really brought to the fore by this book. Um, and and it, it's just intriguing and disturbing uh, uh, as, a, as a story. Who are these spies? Why do people become spies? Why do they become double agents? What, are, what, what makes these people tick? They're kind of different from the rest of the world in a lot of ways. In, in some ways, yes. I mean, there are people... Uh, great many of them are patriots, people who want to serve their country. Uh, they want to serve it in the shadows because that's the way they feel they can best serve their country by getting to these secrets. The traitors are a more complicated bunch. I think it's too easy to say that people betray their country just just for the money. I think in many ways they want to they have some hidden need to be actors in the world stage, to feel that they can influence history by their actions. Their relatively mundane lives are suddenly given a new significance. And it's not really a political or a financial need which is forcing them uh, to commit treason. It's this ego that they alone have the answers. And what's so... <laughs> fascinating and dangerous that as long as there are humans involved in, in, in espionage, there will be traitors. That's, that's the one thing you can know for sure. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Howard Bloom. His new book is The Spy Who Knew Too Much, an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. The book is available at your local independent bookstore. You want to buy it. You want to read it. It's an amazing, fascinating, and disturbing story. Howard Bloom, thank you so very much for your time, and thank you so very much. Pleasure speaking with you again. For this book. Thank you. But if this ever-changing world This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Makes you This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And for a change of pace, it is our monthly comedy quiz. Let me turn the microphone over to Maddie Benjamin. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. I'm Maddie Benjamin, improv performer at Happier Valley Comedy Theater and monthly nerd in residence. And this is the Happier Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. Every month on the Comedy Quiz, we invite a guest quiz master to test the knowledge of our panelists on a variety of subjects they often know nothing about. This week, I'm competing with Pam Victor, founder and head of happiness at Happier Valley Comedy, and WHMP's own Monty Belmonte. And finally, he's a middle school history teacher, an unofficial Beatles scholar, and we live in the same house. Our guest quiz master today is Patrick Tenero. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, Patrick, we should just 
let you know we just had a long talk with someone who knows a lot about the CIA and all sorts of horrible things. If there has been any any hint of any mis you know miscreants miscreant, mm. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to talk about. Yeah. I'm trying to say that should should one Maddie Benjamin indicate in any way that there has been some well how to put this shenanigans going on in terms of. <laughs> previous knowledge of what the question might be, we are going to have to take special steps. Okay. You're a cheetah. (laughs) And I know an ACLU lawyer. (laughs) Hey, I take trivia very seriously. Yes, I know. We know. Weston, could you could you could you cross the line? Okay, let's see. What's what's next? Are you ready, Patrick? Oh, I am ready. How about you folks? Ready. What's the subject of the quiz? Did we already say that? It is the Beatles. Heard of them. All right, well, let's just hop into it here. Question number one. Uh, This is multiple choice. What Beatles song contains the most uses of the interjection, yeah? Is it A, it won't be long, B, she loves you, or C, please, please me? Pam, C, please, please me. Just because I want everyone to please me. I'm going with A. (laughs) Um, I was also going to go with uh, A, because those are the only lyrics I can think of to that song, so there's got to be a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot of She Loves You, yeah, 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 yeah but, yeah, but yeah. then there's a lot of, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the other one. Do we also count background yes? Totally. Uh, yes, any and all yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, foreground a. and background. Carl Yastrzemski, all the yeses get <laughs> okay. counted. And the answer is? And the answer is A, it won't uh, be long. Ooh. Yes, Monty was correct. Okay. Point for Monty. So is Maddie, by the also, way. Also, also Maddie. And Maddie, and Maddie yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so we we just we just left a Pam. Everyone got it right, but Pam. It, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Please, <laughs> please, please, please. Yeah. All right. Cool. Let's move on to question two. What is the only Beatles album composed entirely of Lennon McCartney originals? Is it A. Abbey Road, B. A Hard Day's Night? Or C, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Again, what is the only one that has only songs written by Paul and John? Monty's going with B. Which was B? A Hard Day's Day's Night. night. Mm. Pam's going with B, because Monty is. Maddie's going with B, because I think by later in the career they let George play sometimes, but I don't (laughs) think they did early on. That is what I'm going with. That's my thought behind it. And the answer is? And they got it right. It is a hard day's night. Only Lennon-McCartney numbers on that one. If you watch the um, the Beatles documentary, you can get the feeling that they reluctantly let George in, <laughs> even at the end of the career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to uh, ask about a George song right now. Question number three. Who is playing lead guitar on While My Guitar Gently Weeps? Is it A? <laughs> no, Monty. Put your hand down. You thought the teacher is not going to call on you. That's not the way this works. This is an audio medium, Monty. <laughs> also, as a DJ, shouldn't he have to play with his, like, hands behind his back or something? <laughs> or just one earplug. There we go. Um, is it A, Pete Townsend? B, Keith Richards, or C, Eric Clapton? Mm, Pam, I think it's Clapton. Because I think they hung out with him, and but then, yeah, they hung out with him. Maddie? Uh, uh, 
C, Clapton, because Clapton starts with C, and that's uh, as far as my logic goes this morning. <laughs> oh, okay, Monty. What do you, okay, Monty, the kid, the kid in the back row with his hand, put your hand down, stop wiggling around there, and tell us what you need to say. It, it is Eric Clapton, and they, had, uh, they shared wives as well. <laughs> yes, that is, that's true. Yep. Not at the same time. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you'll have to ask her. Um, okay. Everyone Re- got it right. So many points. Okay. Wow. Ready for another? Yeah. Oh, number four. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Before recording the song, I Want to Be Your Man Themselves, the Beatles gifted the tune to what other group? Was it A, The Who? B, The Kinks, or C, The Rolling Stones. Say the name of the song. I Want to Be Your Man. Oh, I thought Themselves was part of the song. Okay. <laughs> 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 mm. Oh, wait. They gifted the what song. Was the first, what was the first Not one? The Stones, The Kinks. So we've got, uh, you know, the other titans here. We've got The Who, we've got The Kinks, and we've got The Rolling Stones. So who took this song and recorded it before The Beatles? Monty's going with The Kinks. Yeah, I was going to go with The Kinks also because they needed it more than The Stones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm going to go with... Uh, the who, because we can't all say the same answer every time. <laughs> well, we got ourselves a triple stumper here. <laughs> it is indeed the Stones. If what? you haven't heard, if you haven't heard that version, check it out. Great slide guitar. Wow. The Beatles yeah. gave a song they wrote to the Stones, and the Stones recorded. Is that what you're saying? Is that, that what you're saying? That, is that what you're saying? I, I, I'm establishing that fact in the year 2022. That is correct. Well, and didn't they work in the same studio? So there was some overlap, and like, I, I don't need this yeah. one. You want this one? Sure, I'll take it. They crossed paths now and then, for sure. Uh, this is one of those moments. How are we doing? Another one? Sure. Uh, but let's go back one second. The <laughs> yeah. Beatles recorded it and the Stones recorded it? That's right. The Stones recorded I Want to Be Your Man. Uh, again, you could fact check this, but approximately a month or two before the Beatles did. So that they wrote it, gave it to the Stones first, then did their own And then version. took it back? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't think the Stones did it well enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Too many yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, Patrick. Okay, question question five here. Which of the following people was never an official member of the Beatles? Was it A, Billy Preston, B, Pete Best, or C, Stuart Sutcliffe? So who was never officially... No, Monty, sit down. The, the kid in the back of the room here is impossible. Mont- I'll let you two answer no, first. No, Monty, Monty's twitching. He gets to answer first. <laughs> okay, and now it's our but play I'm by... But going to do what Monty says, we're gonna, so we're maybe that's not fair. We have a play-by-play here. Monty's twitching. His hands what are up. I, what I'm, I'm throwing yeah. you off the scent? All right. You're not going to do that because you like to win. Uh, I think it's Sutcliffe because that's a funny name. Maddie? Uh, I'm going with A because that's the only name I don't recognize. If you watch the Beatles documentary, yeah. they make a great argument why he should be the fifth Beatle, but he never was a Beatle, and it is A, Billy Preston. Monty is correct. It's A, Billy Preston. If you never heard of Stuart, look him up. Fascinating guy who was in the Beatles early on. And Pete Best was, was their the drummer, drummer. Yep. that got overlooked by. And Maddie also said that, so she should get the point, too. Yes, and, and, yeah. and Peter Best, who uh, was basically uh, asked to 
lead, absent himself uh, for, for Ringo Starr, uh, did put out an album called The Best of the Beatles, right? <laughs> <laughs> that could very well be true. Yeah. He did. I think that's true. Can I get a point for that? Sure. I may have made Go it up. For it. Yeah. You are the scorekeeper. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, well, at the moment, uh, Monty Belmonte has four points. Uh, Pam and Maddie have three each. And Monty, we're going to see how many we're going to discount yours just because you have an advantage here, we think. <laughs> And this is our monthly comedy quiz. Hopefully we will have some help for the second part of our quiz. The microphone goes back to Maddie Benjamin. Thank you so much, Bill. And we, I think, have a couple more multiple choice questions from our quiz master, Patrick Tenero, before we head on to our open answer. So go right ahead, Patrick. And can I just say what the, the subtitle of this is? It's the Beatles' Get Wrecked Western Mass, I think <laughs> is what Patrick was calling it, right? Was I don't it? know. I was promised that no one would get anything right, and so far we've gotten a lot of things right. So yeah, That's just because, yes, yes, you have. You've, you've, you've very, very, very well done. Okay, Thank I guess you. it's time for the hard questions then. Okay, here we uh, go, Patrick. Uh, question six. What uplifting Beatles song catches John dropping a naughty word around the three-minute mark? So in the background noise of the song, is it A... Hey Jude, B, here comes the sun, or C, hello, goodbye. I think it's hello, goodbye, because you're like, hello, bleep it, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go with uh, here comes the sun. (laughs) The the sweetest song. Because... You don't want it to be, like, too sweet, right? You just need, like, a little bit of something naughty in the background. <laughs> I'm going to go with Hey Jude because it's so long, and he just got bored and was like, I have to drop an F-bomb or something here in the middle of this. And they were like, how are we going to end this song? Do you know? And one guy was like, nah. And the other guy was like, nah. I stole that joke. I stole that joke. I didn't write it, but I love it. I love that joke. Is is this the song where in certain versions of it being shown on tape that they slow it down to hear the word better? Uh, I think it's a volume thing. You really got to crank it ah, to uh, different ca- songs. Ca- catch so this, more than yeah. more than more than one uh, curious word yeah. in the Beatles. Okay. Uh, in this instance, it was A, Hey Jude. Yeah, right yeah. before the na-na's, turn up the volume, you're in for a treat. Nice. <laughs> well, it was about Jude feeling very angry, so maybe that was part of it. Had his own dad, Julian. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, question seven. Wait, then. I thought he was angry at Yoko Ono. No, I think Hey Jude is a Paul McCartney song that he wrote to try to help out Julian Lennon navigate some stuff with his dad. Gotcha. Real? I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Can confirm? Just like in the sky with diamonds. <laughs> don't say it isn't. The comedy quiz where you can say whatever you want for whatever reason might come to mind. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Hello, goodbye. <laughs> Question seven. Besides Octopus's Garden, what is the only other entirely starky composition in the Beatles catalog? Is it A good night? B, don't pass me by, or C, yellow submarine. 
Can I ask a follow-up clarifying question? Of course. A follow-up clarifying question, yes. What does Starkey mean in this context? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to have our first Beatle quiz dropout. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. And I'm sure there are many listeners who have the same question. So, oh, uh, Shut up, Bill. <laughs> this is patronizing. Uh, that is the original surname of one Ringo Starr before he got into show business. So that's ah, Ringo. Yeah. Didn't realize his name was an adjective. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a stark reminder of the brutality of, of showbiz. You're feeling a little starky today. <laughs> well, um, if Octopus's Garden is starky, then uh, Yellow Submarine definitely feels starky. So that's going to be my, my answer. I agree. I agree. Yellow submarine, because so much dark. <laughs> he also takes the lead vocals on that one, so I'm leaning towards that. There's also an underwater theme. Maybe that's what Ringo liked to write about. But I'm gonna hedge my bets and guess A. <laughs> and A was "Good Night," the lullaby that ends the White Album. But in this case, we have another triple stumper. It's B. Don't pass me by. It's a country western uh, theme song. Really? Oh, I was so close with my bet hedging. Really? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Patrick? So at this point, we're going to transition to the open answer or lightning round section. There's no multiple choice here. Uh, Our contestants can just simply pop in with the correct answer when they have it. So our our first description here. This celebratory rocker, so the celebratory song that leads off the second half of the White Album, features the then significant others of the Beatles on background vocals. What is it? Ooh, what, what is the name of the song? The, what is the, the significant others of the Beatles do the background vocals on this song? That is correct. Uh, does that include Yoko? Yes. Aha. Mm. Mm. And Linda? And they are celebrating a day that comes once a year for most folks. Monty, it's birthday. That is correct. <laughs> okay. I almost got that song queued up to just play it when you put it over the top, I was like, I know it. it. it comes one, it, this day comes once a year for, for you. M- for most people. <laughs> wow. How, how, did he, how did he ever get that I guess, right? I, theoretically, if you're a leap year baby, it comes once every four years. Or if you're born like between two days. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I, I guess I have to give Monty a point for that. Okay. Because yeah. I got it entirely correct all by myself. Yeah. Without yeah. any multiple choice. Yeah. Why would you do such a thing? I don't know. It, it was painful, but I gave it to you. Let's try this one out. Uh, this psychedelic opus's name comes from a Liverpool boys' home or orphanage, the wooded back lot of which John and friends used to sneak into to play until shooed away by the staff. It's the song. Well, we're looking at location. Eleanor Rigsby Drive. <laughs> <laughs> is it Strawberry Fields? That is indeed the name of the place, and the song is... Strawberry Fields Forever. That is correct. Excellent. Good job, Monty. Wow. How about another? Um, I need to redeem myself. <laughs> so in 2022... This George Harrison composition sits at the top on Spotify with over 300 million more plays than the next most played song, which has come together. So which George song never was released as a single, though clearly should have been? Hey, what about me? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to go, Maddie? 
Extremely popular Beatles song. I'm going to go with Something by George Harrison. Something? Like what thing? Just something. (laughs) (laughs) Anything? It could be anything, really. (laughs) Maddie, did you want to guess? No, I'm just going to sit here with my eye twitching until someone says the right answer. (laughs) And this is the most popular, most played Beatles song? When I checked this morning, it had over 300 million more plays than the number two song. Wow. Yeah. And it is Here Comes the Sun. People just like to feel good, apparently. So Now I feel silly. There's also a swear in that song, too. There is? Yeah, listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) If you play it backwards... Swears over and over That's again. why people have played it so many times. They're trying to figure out where the bad words are. Well, and so next comedy quiz, how Pam Victor spends her time. Uh, <laughs> well, here, it, com- here comes the son of a... <laughs> there you go. You got it. We have time, I think, for one last question. One more, yeah. Okay, let's do it with this then. <laughs> Vera, Chuck, and Dave are the imagined grandchildren in this tune about the later phases of life. Ooh. When I'm 69. Oh, no, when I'm 69. <laughs> yes! That's a different song, Pat. <laughs> okay, and with that answer, we're going to give Pam Victor extra points, and she will sneak into second place. And what are our final scores, Bill? Well, I'm afraid that... This is not a totally fair quiz, but Monty Belmonte has kind of run away with this one. I so, But I want to congratulate Pam Victor for a really stalwart second place when I'm 69. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I never would have thought of that. Well, thank you so much for playing with us this month. And if you're looking for more laughs in your life, Happier Valley Comedy offers improv storytelling and stand-up classes and workshops, comedy shows every Saturday night, and free Fun Fridays events every week, including a trivia contest on the second Friday of the month. So tickets are available for this Saturday's short-form championship show, and you can check out all our offerings at happiervalley.com. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next month. And thank you, Patrick and Maddie and Pam and Monty. Congratulations, Monty. 